All right, so welcome back. Had a long break. We're going to do a quick review. Hebrews chapter 1. The author is laying out his case of why Jesus is better than anything that Judaism has to offer. And he starts in verse number 5. He's going to make the case that Jesus is superior to the angels. In verse 5 it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And he goes on and says the angels were created to worship God. And he uses a lot of the quotes from the book of Psalms. So if you look up, if your Bible has notes that tells you where these Old Testament quotes are coming from, you can flip back to those verses and read those Psalms. And what you will find is that those verses are talking about the creator God of the universe. So if the author of Hebrews takes those verses from Psalms that are talking about the creator God of the universe, and then he quotes them in Hebrews chapter 1 and says, these verses are talking about Jesus, what does the author of Hebrews want you to understand about who Jesus Christ is? That he's God. That he is God. That the creator God of the universe that we read about in Psalms is Jesus Christ. So the angels, though as great as they are, their creator is vastly superior. All right, so chapter 2 is a warning about falling away. It's a warning about neglecting salvation. And there are two ideas behind this neglecting of salvation and what the author is warning you about. I got some notes here I can pass out to those of you that just came in. You already got one, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. So how can a Christian neglect salvation? The author gives a warning, don't neglect your salvation. What would it look like for a Christian to neglect salvation? Like a prayer life. Like a prayer life. Staying home from church. Staying home from church. Never reading the word. Never reading. Taking your Christianity for granted. Treating Christianity as if, hey, I got my get-out-of-hell-free card, I can do whatever I want. That is neglecting the incredible gift that you have been given. And the author warns you, don't do this. All right, in chapter 3, the author compares Jesus to Moses. Now, Moses was a super big deal to Jews. Why was Moses such a big deal to Jews? What is Moses known for? Let him out of the promised land. Let him out of Egypt. Yeah, he led them out of Egypt. He had been in slavery. Their life was not great. Moses is the great deliverer who brought them out of that bondage. What else did Moses do upon bringing them out of this incredible bondage that they were under? He gave them the law. He gave them the law. The entire Jewish identity was defined by this law. All the ceremonies, all the rules on what they can and can't do, what they could eat, what they're supposed to wear, the festivals. Their entire culture was defined by this man, Moses. Yes, God gave it to him, but thinking about a Jewish mindset here, Moses is the lawgiver. So when the author of Hebrews says, as great as Moses was, Jesus is that much better. And he uses an analogy. Every house has a builder. And the builder is worthy of more honor than that house. In the same way, Jesus is greater or is worthy of more honor than Moses is. So in that analogy, the house and the builder of the house, in that analogy, who is Jesus? The builder of the house. The builder of the house. Who's Moses? The house. The house. So what the author wants to tell you here is, obviously the builder of the house existed before the house did. Jesus, though he was born 1,500 years, give or take, after Moses, Jesus is the creator of Moses. So again, the author wants you to remember over and over again that Jesus is the creator God of the universe. Everybody with me so far? All right, in chapter 4, he warns them. Hi, Mike. Is your wife joining us today? No? Okay. You can share Bill and I. 
I have another one. I gave you 15. Yeah, we're good. Okay. I, I, I actually printed one out by accident myself, so oh, good. we have extra. All right, so in chapter 4, he says, Now Moses brought them out of Egypt. But what did the Jews do almost immediately after they left Egypt? Worship idols. They started worshiping idols. They started complaining about the food. They started wanting to go back to Egypt. I mean, it was just nonstop complaining. And the author of Hebrews says, don't be like those people. You do not want to be like that generation. Because ultimately, what ended up happening is when they get right to the edge of the promised land. Remember, they send out those 12 spies. Mm -hmm. They come back from looking at the promised land and they report back to the people of Israel. Ten of those spies said, hey, the land is as great as God promised. However, what? There are giants in that land. (laughs) We cannot take that land. Because not only are they giants, their cities are well fortified, probably speaking about Jericho. They're just better than us. We cannot do this. Mm -hmm. Two of the spies said, God has brought us this far. You saw what he did in Egypt. He can do the same thing to these people. And that was Joshua and Caleb. Well, the people, unfortunately, sided with the majority report, and what was their punishment? Forty years in the wilderness. The author's warning you, yeah, don't be like those people. Don't neglect your salvation. Don't forget how great Jesus is. Don't abandon everything that you have and want to, in this scenario, run back to Judaism, just like the Jews wanted to run back to Egypt. Don't do that. Right, so in chapter 5, he introduces this idea of Jesus being the high priest. Now, the role of the high priest was a very, very big deal in Judaism. Who was the first high priest? Aaron. Aaron was. Moses' brother Aaron was the first high priest. And everyone who was served as a high priest from that point forward had to be a descendant of Aaron. And he makes this argument that, the author of Hebrews does, that as great as that priesthood was, the Aaronic priesthood, What Jesus has is better. Now, he's not a priest of Aaron because he's not a descendant of Aaron. What tribe was Aaron from? Levi. Levi. What tribe was Jesus from besides the boys? (laughs) Not you, either, or not you two. What tribe did Jesus come from? Judah. Judah. And he makes this argument. Look, no one can be a priest under the Mosaic law who's from the tribe of Judah. So, therefore, Jesus has to be from a different priesthood. Now, Pastor Sean preached on this a few weeks ago. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Right? Who is Melchizedek, Brian? You don't have to answer. Just tell me something about Melchizedek. He was an old guy in the Bible. Who, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what and what's neat, we don't know much about him. Yeah. He's a very mysterious figure. We don't know a lot about him. We know very, very little about Melchizedek. Aaron, uh, not Aaron, Abraham defeats these armies, this united army of kings, and he just crushes them. So when it says um, Aaron, I keep saying Aaron, Abraham was coming back from this great victory. This man, Melchizedek, meets him. And it says his name means king of Salem, which is king of peace. It says he was a prophet of God and a king. And Abraham met this guy and gave him Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils that he had just won. I don't know exactly how much spoils you get from defeating the combined army of a multitude of kings, but I bet it was no small amount. And Abraham recognizes this Melchizedek as somebody important and gives him a tenth of everything he has. And the author of Hebrews says, whenever it comes to tithing, the less important person gives tithes to the more important person. So in this scenario of comparing Abraham and Melchizedek, who's the greater individual? Melchizedek. Melchizedek is. So he says, we had Melchizedek, who was both a king and a priest. This guy, we have no knowledge of his beginning. There's no mention of who his parents, who his grandparents were. We don't know who his kids were. So it's as if he had always been and as if he has continued until this day, he being Melchizedek. And he says, Melchizedek has set up a a picture for us of the type of priest that Jesus will be. There are three prophets 
in Jewish society. Okay, three three offices. Anybody tell me what they are? Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Now the priest had to be what tribe again? Levi. Levi. And the king had to be what tribe? Benjamin Judah. Okay. First one was a Benjamin, and after that Judah. it was Judah. Did the, were the prophets regulated to any particular tribe? No, they could come from anything. But what the law was very clear on, priests had to be of the tribe of Levi. Kings had to be from the tribe of Judah. If you were a king, you were not allowed to do the work of a priest. And that's one thing that got Saul in big trouble, yep. is that he took it upon himself to offer sacrifices to the Lord in a way that only the priest was allowed to do so. So these two offices right here, there is a very, very solid divide between those two. Anybody could be a prophet. Doesn't matter. King David was called a prophet. So Jesus is going to be of the <coughs> tribe, or excuse me, of the priesthood of Melchizedek, where he can be both a priest and a king. And of course, he was also a prophet. So Jesus would hold all of those. And Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do. Alright, so we're going to start reading <coughs> in chapter 5, verse 11. Anybody have any questions? That was a very, very broad overview. So from the lack of questions, I'm going to assume that that was a perfect synopsis of the first five chapters of Hebrews, and there were no mistakes or holes in anything. Okay. And see, yeah, and these are the same kids that would say, well, you never covered that on the test. Not that there is a test. Jamie, you, you feel me, right? Just, all right, class, does anybody have any questions before the test? All right. You never covered this. Oh, good heavens. Okay. So join me in Hebrews chapter 5. And we read these verses a lot, but we're continuing with the same idea. And we're going to start right here with my lovely bride and read a verse, and we'll just go down the line. Okay, starting with what? Verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11. We have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Right, and the this we are talking about is the priesthood of Melchizedek. Mm -hmm. And he stops and says, I would tell you more about this, but you're basically lazy and terrible students, so I can't okay. continue. He, he, the author is very nice to his audience. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. Shelby? For, for solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers <coughs> of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Okay, real quick. What is the author of Hebrews getting on to his audience about? What What is he exasperated with them for? What's What's the... They're not growing up spiritually. They are not growing up. They're not maturing. They are staying like children. It says, at this point, you should be eating the steak and lobster meal, but instead, you're still stuck on, you know, ground up green yep. beans. Bleh. Okay? All right, chapter 6, verse 1. Go ahead, Brian. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying down a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Do you want to read or? And this war will do, if God permits. <clears throat> For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. And have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. 
Which you say since they were crucified? That's the next verse, isn't it? Mm, no. Oh, no. I've got a little number there. Um, since they crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Good, verse 7, and then like verse 8, and that's where we'll stop. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and, and briars is rejected as nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. Okay. Alright, and let's pray and we will start discussing. Father, I thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for each person that's here. Pray this will be a profitable time of study. Pray that we'll have fun that we will learn about you, and that you will be glorified by all that is said and done. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we read a lot of verses. A lot of verses. And I want to, we, we talked about this for the last two weeks. So we're going to go over it quick for the now five people that are new to this class. When I say these descriptions, I want you to tell me, so you three and you two are not allowed to talk, and you're not allowed to talk. All right. That just makes you want to talk. It does. It does. It's that rebellious. Okay. So I'm, just give, I'm going to give them the first opportunity before I give the experienced members of the class an opportunity. Okay. Yeah. Experienced members. Right. I'm going to read these verses, and you tell me what kind of person you think is being discussed here. So these are people who have been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. What kind of person does it sound like is being described in those verses? Christian. Okay. Sounds like talking about Christian. Born again. Okay. Somebody's born again. These are Christians. Now, there is a great debate within Christianity about who these people are. And for the last, the last two classes that we met, um, I get a lot of my reading from the, the New American Commentary on the book of Hebrews, and the author of that, his name is uh, Professor or Dr. Allen, and he wants his audience to know is that the idea that these verses are describing people who only appear to be Christians is a very new idea, relatively speaking, so the last 150 years, that's new as far as Christianity is concerned. Because listen to the next few verses. He says, it is impossible for those people, and then now verse 6, who have done all these great things and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Now what does that sound like has happened to this group of people? Apostasy. Okay. Apostasy. I think that word is used in some translations. What does that mean? How would you define that term? To uh, steer away from God. Okay. I've fallen away literally. To abandon faith. Okay. To lose their salvation. Mm -hmm. To lose their salvation. Mm -hmm. Now, as a non-free will Baptist church, the idea that somebody could lose their salvation, that just it causes this visceral response, right? Because we always say, once saved, always, always saved. saved. Okay, that, that is a mantra that's been beaten into our heads. Now, what I like to do is I like to challenge people's ideas. Because when something becomes so well known that it's almost a mantra, you kind of stop thinking about it. Because it's just, once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. It's like this, that's why I don't like responsive reading. It kind of creeps me out. So anyway, the idea that these verses are describing people who only appeared to be Christian, but then walked away from it, that is a new idea. And he quotes these these people all the way from the Reformation all the way back to the early church fathers that always thought of those people as being true believers. It is talking about true believers, true believers. These are true believers. So if that is true, then we ha definitely have to answer, well, does it falling away mean to lose salvation? <coughs> because if it does, then we need to become free will Baptists, which means we're Baptists, but we believe you can lose your salvation. Lord, they may have never been saved. But it says they shared in the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So, how can you share in the Holy Spirit without being saved? Well, that's why I'm going to sit down and y'all discuss. 
Maybe See? they heard they they heard the word, but they didn't believe on it. <clears throat> so if I told you that every I can't say every a majority of the early church fathers, and by early church fathers I mean these are guys who are second and third generation after the disciples. So Tertullian, Irenaeus, Clement of Rome, these guys with really weird Latin names. They all, in their commentaries, say these are describing true Christians. Hebrews 6, verses 4 and 5 are talking about true Christians. There's no doubt these are Christians. Um, who's the uh, Wesley, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, says, you have to twist scripture to say that these people are anything other than absolute true believers. The first person, based on the resources that Dr. Allen uses in his book, to actually propose the idea that these were only those who appeared to be Christians was John Calvin. So for the first 1,500 odd years of church history, the majority of people said, no, those are Christians. Well, isn't the Holy Spirit the guarantee of our salvation? Mm -hmm. So if they partook in that... Well, different translations say they tasted. So oh, maybe, maybe it's just people that... The people that I was going to say that. Maybe it's just people that go to church. Mm -hmm. They take the sermon. They worship and everything, but they don't have the relationship with God. Okay. And that would be a new idea of looking at those scriptures. Again, that, that idea didn't really come around until Calvin in the 1500s. So if I told you for 1,500 years everybody has believed this, however, they're all wrong, listen to me, I'm John Calvin, those people are not saved. Now, do you see why that's dangerous? Mm -hmm. I'm bringing in a completely different understanding of how to interpret Scripture. So let's just assume for a moment that these people are saved. If that is true, we need to examine what falling away means. Does that mean they have lost their salvation? Because there's, there's a question that I'm purposely leaving unasked because I want somebody to ask this question. If we're assuming that these people who have been described are indeed Christians, we have to examine, because all of church for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, everybody said these people are saved. Do we need to ask what about falling away? What does that actually mean? Just so nobody gets, you know, a too high of a pucker factor, I do not believe you can lose your salvation. Okay, just let's clear the air on that. Why not? <laughs> so are you, I'm trying to follow your train of thought here. Okay. Are you, are you asking if falling away means they end up in hell? That is what a lot of people think. They will say that these people were never true Christians. This, this is the, the more modern take on it. These people described were never true Christians. They flirted with church. They sat in church. They liked the good feels they got. They liked the friends. But they never actually believed. And as a result, their heart gets so hardened that at a certain point, God says, you're done. Like, you're, I'm, you are completely done. You have walked away. You've abandoned. I'm not going to save you. Now, what a Methodist like John Wesley would say is that these are people who were completely saved, but for whatever reason, they completely turned their back on God and said, I no longer believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is that way. I'm turning my back to him, and I'm going this way. That's what John Wesley would say. That would be an extreme neglect on salvation. Correct. Which could be, if you're looking at falling away, it doesn't say falling away from what? And so if this were someone who was a true Christian, it could be that they've fallen away from being the kind of person who acts like a true believer and ha Lot vexed his righteous soul. Um, and, and that kind of an idea where they are, they are searing their own conscience. Um, they are grieving the Holy Spirit, if you will. So if you're looking at it from that perspective, um, that it doesn't say what fallen away could be exactly, so I would have to think that that fallen away might be something more along those lines. Okay, what were the preceding verses a warning about? Why was he, the author of Hebrews? Why was he upset with his audience? 
Anybody can answer. They were spiritually immature. They were spiritually they immature. They were not growing up. Chapter five. Sorry. <laughs> chapter five, yes. In chapter five, he is upset that his audience is not maturing. And he gives several verses about you need to grow up, you need to mature, you need to do this. Quit being babies. Right. So what Dr. Allen proposes in his book is that this idea of falling away, it's not losing salvation. These are people who are genuinely saved. However, because of their lack of willingness to submit to the Lordship of God, their unwillingness to grow spiritually, whatever, however descriptive you want to say, is that they just refuse to grow. They are stuck in a perpetual state of spiritual immaturity. He makes a very, he, it's a good argument. Yes, Gene. When you go to verses 7 and 8. Which are our focus for tonight, by the way. Go ahead. He's comparing, <clears throat> he's comparing a uh, useful crop mm -hmm. to thorns and thistles. Comparing and contrasting. Similar language to what Jesus uses. Teaching about, um, you know, salt losing its flavor. Mm -hmm. and So, I guess my point is, it's got this distinction between useful cultivated crops, blessing from God, and people who are thorns and thistles. Well, the thorns and the thistles people, you can argue, were never really saved. That, that the gospel did not take root in terms of the four seeds of the sower, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I think that that could be used as an argument to say that these people were not saved. Okay. Now, I, I also have a little bit of, of a different take on <coughs> verse 6. If you take out all the prepositional phrases there, you, get, you end up with, for it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Mm -hmm. There's, I, I think the author here is saying there's only one way of salvation, and that is Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. There's no other crucifixion. There's no other restores to be saved. Only through Jesus. So you can't find another way of salvation. This is the only way of salvation. So you can't be restored through another way. If you have somebody who thinks they're a believer, me, right? I, I mm -hmm. thought I was a believer as a young child. I was definitely thorns and thistles throughout my young adulthood. And I believe I was restored. Or, or I wouldn't say I was saved again, but I was, you know. I grew up in the church, like many of us. Walked away. God saved me. Mm -hmm. Was I restored? Did I fall away? No, I think God saved me at the right time. Okay. So... What you're saying, you don't believe that you were saved and lost your salvation and then were re-saved. That you right. would disagree with people that say that. Right. I think, I think maybe it's possible like you can interpret this that you can't be re-saved. You didn't lose your salvation mm -hmm. to be re-saved. If you come to salvation, you're not being restored. You are coming to salvation for the first time. I'm glad you mentioned the four soils because we will be getting to that, mm -hmm. time permitting. There's no time. Well, we taught that in four-year-old Sunday school this yes, week. Oh, okay. So, um, and as I'm going back and looking at it, I mean, except for the, the seed that fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it right up. Well, mm -hmm. there was no confusion about that. But the seed that fell on the rocky ground where it didn't have much soil and immediately it sprang up, well, it might have grown for a while, but because it had no depth of soil and then after the sun had risen... And as the four-year-olds like to say, it melted mm -hmm. <laughs> in the hot sun. And because it had no root, it withered away. But there was probably a period where it looked like there was something growing. And it was only after it withered away. And then other seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked it. But it's not, you know, definitive, you know. So did it look like you had a good plant for a while? And then the thorns overtook it. So... What do you make of that good plant originally? Mm -hmm. And then there were the seeds that fell into the good soil and increased, and there was just no doubt about those seeds. All so, right, so, the, so the four soils, the first one, there's no doubt they were not saved. No, they got eaten by the birds. Right the away. last one, there's no question, those are genuine believers. Right. Yep. The middle two are somewhat 
question. Ambiguous. Ambiguous. I like that word. Ooh. It's ambiguous. Less to yeah. not the SAT words there. Ambiguous. <laughs> certain amount of ambiguity is involved in this would, passage. Would you disqualify uh, as an example of this? Because he was with Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. He was uh, a follower of Jesus Christ. He was there. He was witnessing. And I could even say that, uh, he, I mean, he wouldn't spend that all that time following Jesus if he didn't at least consider the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah. Mm -hmm. So the point of betrayal would be the point of turning away. The, would he be an example of this? I would say Judas is a prime example of someone who, I want to read all the words right, he was enlightened. He tasted the heavenly gift. Yeah. He shared in the Holy Spirit. He tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Judas would have been among the disciples when they were casting out demons, mm -hmm. healing people. He would have been performing these miracles. It said the disciples did that. Mm -hmm. It didn't say the disciples, all of them except Judas. It just said the disciples were doing this. And we actually discussed this a couple weeks ago. Yeah, Judas is, a, is an example. So was Judas saved and then lost his salvation? Now, I've already answered it. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. So I'm just... And the disciples were doing the baptizing too, not Jesus. Mm -hmm. Judas so did. Judas did everything that Peter did, except maybe talk as much. Okay. So it's crazy to think. I mean, wow. <laughs> All right. So now let's 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 focus on verses seven and eight. All of that was a review. We had we asked the same questions two weeks ago. What about Judas? What what about Judas? Was he a true believer and then he, he lost it? Or, or what happened? All right, so verse 7 and 8. All right, so um, if you do this, if you, if you fall away after having done all these great things, it is impossible to restore you again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So the obvious question is, can you crucify Jesus again? Not you cannot. Okay, you cannot figure. So it's, it's you're bringing him to open shame, open contempt. People will talk bad about Jesus because of your actions. Verse seven, for the land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Now I'm going to ask the obvious question right now. What does it mean its end is to be burned? Because when you hear that language, there's something that kind of automatically pops up in your head. What, what is that one thing? Imagine it being fire. Don't Hell. Have a lake of fire. Hell, lake of fire. <clears throat> so again, remember, I like to question everything. So pretty much, no matter what you say, I'm going to argue against it. So Gene, I pretty much agree with you, but I'm going to argue anyway because I like it. Okay, just so you know my, my mindset. My wife does not care for that so much sometimes. <laughs> I have learned not to argue with her. <laughs> yes, because I am smart. <laughs> <laughs> and she is too. So if she says I'm wrong, it's like, you know what? She, she don't right. a line from my fair lady. Why can't a woman be more like a man? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the first thing that we want to notice about this parable, because he, this is a mini parable, that this is one plot of land. He's not comparing and contrasting two different plots. He says, here is a plot of land. This plot of land receives rain. If this rain produces good fruit, wonderful. If it produces thorns and thistles, it's near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So people think, okay, a Christian is going to produce good fruit. There's going to be evidence. A non-Christian is going to produce bad fruit. It's going to be obvious, and their end is to be cast into the lake of fire and burned up, and that's what that parable is talking about. Okay. But is it? The word worthless there, um, I can't pronounce the Greek word, but it means to not stand the test. It means to be disqualified or unproved of. And it's used throughout in other places in Scripture by Paul, who I think wrote this book, and it has nothing to do with eternal damnation. Somebody volunteer to read 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. 
Not everybody volunteer at once. Chapter 13, verse 5. Somebody else read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. Okay? I don't know who said that, but cool. So we're looking for words that mean worthless. It might say, again, not standing the test. You've been disqualified. You're not approved. You're, you're not good enough. Words to that effect. All right, go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Okay, you fail the test. That's the same word when it says this lamb that doesn't produce anything is worthless. All right? Who had 1 Corinthians 9, 27? Go ahead, loud and proud. But I just... I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Okay, who wrote 1 Corinthians? I already said the answer. Paul. Paul. Oh. So Paul's saying, I'm keeping my body under control so I don't become disqualified. Is Paul saying I'm doing this so I don't become damned? So what is he going to be disqualified from? Preaching. The ministry. From preaching, from the ministry. So, the, so when it says that this land that produces only thorns and thistles <coughs> is worthless, it has nothing to do with saying it's, it's damned. All right? And it says that this ground is near to being cursed. It doesn't say it is cursed. You see, there's a big difference there. If you're not producing fruit, you're not cursed. You're near to being cursed. Okay, it says the end is to be burned. Now, does that have to mean hell? I want to say it doesn't have to mean. When I'm speaking about agriculture, and I say a plot of land is going to get burned because it's full of thorns and thistles, what am I, what am I implying about this land? Trying to clear the land to try it again. You clear it. I got this pasture here. I want to plow this and grow crops to feed my family because I live in an agrarian society. This, this is how I do life. All these thorns and thistles are impossible. I, I am physically incapable of digging all of them up, getting the roots out of this land. I'm going to set fire to it and burn it and kill everything in there. So then I can go back in. Now I can plow this land and now this land might now be capable of producing that which I want, food to feed my family. So when we read passages like this, and our mind immediate, immediately goes to this mindset, go ahead. 1 Corinthians 3.15 says, if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so is through fire. Well, you didn't let him talk that, before. That's true. That's actually the next verse I'm bringing up. What so, we will definitely come right back and we're going to read some of the preceding verses. But exactly, this idea of being burned up does not always mean hell. So when you're reading your Bible and you see burned up, destined for fire, and all this stuff, it may be talking about hell, but it may not be. This is why it's very important to read the Bible in context. The and reality we, is we will all have works that are burned up that do not stand because they are yes. not of God. Yes. Right, so what, what Dr. Allen proposes, which is, again, contrary to a lot of modern, recent understanding, is that the people described in verses 4, 5, and chapter 6, <laughs> verses 4 and 5, they are true believers. And the falling away is not falling away as losing their salvation. It's being locked into for a perpetual state of immaturity, never growing. You will make it to heaven, but there will be no reward. And we're about to read that. 1 Corinthians 3 passage. And he says, I'm going to prove this by using his own analogy that the author uses. He describes one plot of land. If it produces good fruit, great. If not, its end is to be burned. And all that means is we're going to purge the bad stuff out of it, the thorns and thistles, so that it might have a chance to produce good crops. All right, so now let's look at, everybody go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. This is another example, and we've already heard it, of fire having nothing to do with hell, 
but of God's judgment of Christians. And that's one of the blanks in the uh, notes, if you're keeping up with that. This fire language, it can mean hell, and oftentimes it does, but sometimes it means God's judgment of Christians. And I'll, just, I'll read this for expediency's sake. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. All right, so he's doing this analogy of a building. And he says, the foundation has been laid, and who is that foundation? Okay, Jesus Christ. So everything gets built up upon that. So without Jesus, the building won't fall. It's like building a house on the sand. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, which is Jesus, if they build on it with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, and that's a capital D, will disclose it. Now, when we see the word day capitalized in Scripture, what day is that speaking of? The day of what? Judgment. Okay, the day of judgment. Because it will be revealed by what? Fire. Fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So you've got the foundation, which is Jesus. It's laid. And then it's our responsibility to build upon that foundation. And he lists several materials that can be built, can be used to be built, that can be used to build upon that foundation with. What were those materials again? Somebody read it. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, what? Precious stones. Yep. And then wood, hay, straw. Yep. So you got gold, silver, precious stones, three good things, mm -hmm. and wood, hay, straw common things. So this foundation is laid, which is Jesus. Your job is to build upon that. These are the materials you have. Choose what, what you want and start building it. When the day of judgment comes, it's going to be tested by fire. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, I'm in verse 14, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So if I'm building on this, this solid foundation of salvation, okay, I put my hope and faith in Jesus. I am saved. I got the solid foundation of salvation. But the works that I produce are hay, wood, straw, stubble, some translations used. Those are common worthless things. But if I build upon it with gold, silver, and precious stone, that which is valuable, then when the fire comes upon and tests my works, which of those two is not going to get burned up? Gold, silver, and precious stone. The gold, silver, and precious stone, that which is remains. So in this analogy, the fire has to do with the testing of the believer's works. The works that you do on this earth, when tested on the day of judgment, will be revealed, their quality will be revealed by fire. That which is worthless is done. That which remains, the gold, silver, precious stone, is what you get to lay at the feet of the Messiah. Any questions so far? Any corrections so far? Okay. All right, let's continue reading. In Hebrews or Corinthians? That's a good question. Back in Hebrews. Yeah, so question, question. Yeah, go ahead. Before we, uh, so in verse 15, it says, If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So is that implying that even if all your works are burned up, all of them were hay, wood, and all that, mm -hmm. you would still be saved through fire? Yeah. So even if you don't have any tower on top of the foundation, just the foundation. Feet on the cross. Okay. So it's just yeah. by faith. It case. is by faith. Okay. The, the, the works that you do are not done for salvation. They're a result of your salvation. Yes. Exactly. And there's also rewards. 
There will be wars. So how can you be? They would lose. How can you be a Christian and not have at least one thing that is now growing? Okay, that's a very very good question. Okay, and that is why there are a lot of denominations that preach you can lose your salvation. That's why there are so many people that still believe you have to work for your salvation. Mm -hmm. They want to say, there must be something mm -hmm. that I have to do for God. When all of Christianity tells you, it's not what you've done for God, it's what God has done for you. And that, that I would say, goes against our nature. We want to mm -hmm. do something. And I would say that goes against, when I say it goes against our nature, not just human nature, but I say predominantly rich capitalist American society. We want to earn something. We, we want this bad. But this verse does make it seem possible that a person can be saved, that they can be locked into a state of spiritual immaturity through their, their, their hardness of heart, and God's judgment is, you're stuck in this condition. And when the day of judgment comes, you will have nothing to give back to me. You're saved. You got that foundation, but that's it. You take you take nothing with you. It is kind of hard because at the end it says, "By your fruits you will know them." Mm -hmm. So only Jesus knows what's in the heart. Correct. So whether you can completely disagree with with Alan's position, you can disagree with me, you can disagree with anybody. But what what makes it what is true is if I look at you, I can see you doing great things. I can say, "Well, yeah." Camille's saved, but do I know your heart? No. Okay. I can look at another person and say, they've been saved for 10 years and I, I haven't seen much growth in them. They're probably not saved. I may be right, but can I know for sure? No. I can't. So these passages are not given so I can look at other people and judge them. They're so that I examine my own life. This is not so I can judge you guys. Like, I'm, I'm judging your works. I'm, I'm watching, are you giving, are you tithing, are, are you at church every Sunday, are you reading your Bible? No, 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 no. I'm examining my own life. Am I producing fruit? Do I, do I love God more now than I did 10 years ago? Do I love God now more than I did last year? Do I see growth? These, these are all internal. This is examining yourself to see if you love God. Are you producing fruit? Very good question. Are you getting to the point where you can teach someone else? Yeah, which is what this verse is talking about. That's right. That, that's the exact, the exact example that the author uses. He looks at these guys. At this point, you should be teachers yourself, but you're still babies. So these people are kind of guilty of exactly this. Mm -hmm. the, the author of Hebrews is trying to stir up his own audience. He's shaming them. He's telling them a very, very hard truth. You guys are spiritual babies. And you should not be. You should be teaching at this point. Not that everybody stands up in a pulpit or teaches a Sunday school class, but you should be able to explain to your children, to your grandchildren, to your siblings, to your peers, the basics of the faith. At least who Jesus is and what he's done for you. But if you're incapable of teaching anybody anything and you've been a Christian for 20 years, something's wrong. Again, don't have to be a Sunday school teacher, but you should be able to teach your own children, your own grandchildren, something about the truth of who God is, what he's done in your life, and why you love him. So the, the author of Hebrews is just ripping into his audience. And he's not doing it out of anger. He's doing it out of love as a preacher. As any good preacher says, look, I love you guys. And I don't have to tell you something you're not going to like to hear, but you need to grow up. You're in danger of going into eternity and not having any rewards yourself. Because we just can't take <coughs> verses 4, 5, 6 and read them out of context. You've got to start with chapter 5, verse 11 and see the argument that he's building up. So I haven't completely, I don't know if I completely agree with Alan's position, but I find it a very, very strong argument. All right, verse 9. It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So how does, 
So he, after just lambasting them about their spiritual immaturity, he then turns and gives this warning about not having any rewards. He kind of softens, and what does he, what does he reassure his audience with? What good words does he tell them? <laughs> we are confident in, your, in matters of your salvation. We are confident in matters of your salvation. Is that what the C, uh, the Christian Standard Bible says? Mm-hmm. It says, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. Okay. Mine says things that belong to salvation. That's the ESV. Does anybody have anything else that says? Things that accompany salvation. Things that accompany, things that belong to I think the NIV says a company as well. So notice it doesn't say we are confident of better things, those better things being salvation. Say, no, no, we're confident of things that accompany salvation, things that pertain to salvation, things that relate to salvation, things that come from salvation. He doesn't say salvation itself. Verse 10 says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So in this case, what the author of Hebrews sees in his audience is that they're a loving people. They love the saints. They serve other people. These are good things. He says God is not going to be unjust to overlook that. So when I say God is not unjust to overlook that, then then the reverse of that I could say if God does overlook it, it makes him what? It makes him unjust. So that's not our God. We serve a just God. So if you find yourself staying awake at night wondering this whole if God has predestined people for hell or heaven and does that make God just or unjust, just rest assured, God is just. Okay? God is not an unjust God. And that's what the author of Hebrews wants his audience to know. He says, verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but (laughs) imitators of those who through faith and patience have inherited the promise. I actually got a little bit ahead of myself. Um, Going back to this thorn and thistle things, forgot to talk about the four soils. You had already mentioned them, the the four soils. Mm -hmm. But it's worth going over again. The four soils, the first one, the birds. Jesus is giving this parable. He says the sower goes out and he throws the seed around. The seed is the word of God. He says it lands on the rocky path. The birds swoop in, eat it immediately so that they're not saved. Okay, so there's really no question about that. And he says the next one falls on the kind of the side of the road where it's very rocky. These plants spring up. They produce fruit for a while, but because they don't have any depth of root, the sun scorches them and they wither away and they just kind of die. The others spring up for a bit and they seem to be going well, but then the cares and concerns of the, of the world, and use of the word thorns, surround this plant and choke it out. They choke the life out of it. And the fourth one finally falls on the good path and it springs forth, produces fruit, and it multiplies. So we have that parable of the fourth soil. The author of Hebrews is using the same type of language. I meant to go back over that. I completely forgot about it, even though I wrote it on the board. Right. And this is using a lot of the same language that the Old Testament uses, this idea of thorns and thistles and even fire being used for judgment. Um, not, don't have time for this tonight, but in Isaiah and Ezekiel, there are several passages where it talks about the nation of Israel is God's garden. He says, I built a wall around it. I dug up all the rocks. I put fertilizer in it, I cared for it, I did everything, I sent rain, but yet it didn't do anything. No good fruit grew out of it. He says what did grow was worthless thorns and thistles. And God talks about it, says, right, I ripped it out, tore down the wall, and started all over again. And he keeps using this idea of Israel rejecting God. He goes back and uses the people in, in the Exodus who kept rejecting God. They want to turn back and go back to Egypt and rejecting the promised land and all this stuff. And in all of that, did they ever cease being his people? Did he ever say, I am completely done with you? Even in Exodus, God says, I'm going to wipe all of them out, just kill every single one of them, I'm going to start again with you, Moses. And Moses intercedes on their behalf, and God says, 
Okay, I'm not going to destroy them. They're not going to the promised land. They're going to wander around for 40 years in the desert till they all die. But during that 40 years, God provided food. He provided protection. He still cared for them. So when you see verses, like in Hebrews, it keeps using this comparison to Old Testament, Israel being God's garden, comparing the current Christians to the Jews of the Exodus. Don't be like that. Even though they messed up and God kept having to kind of re reboot, if you will, they never ceased being his people. God never gave up on them. There was always God there with them. All right. We're not assuming that all Israelites, just because they're his people, are no. in heaven. No, no, we're not assuming that. But there are some okay. But there are some who will say, well, there's no proof that those Israelites that died went to heaven. That that's that's not a good good argument. If, because there there are people who will say, well, all those Israelites who died, they're they're probably in hell. Well, how do you know? Because after being told the pronouncement of judgment, you're not going to the promised land, they felt instant remorse. They regret it, they begged for forgiveness. And they just threw themselves at God, please give us another chance. And God said, you're still my people, but you're not getting that land. I'm not killing you. I'm not casting you out. I'm not rejecting you. You're just going to miss out on that rest, that reward of the promised land. So it there were individuals. There were individuals. The nation, like what you're saying, like when Moses came down with the law, mm -hmm. and they destroyed a whole lot of those guys because they chose the idol over God when he asked them to step forward and separate themselves and he said destroy all the people that didn't step forward you know what I'm talking about mm -hmm. yeah kill take everybody your sword and smite yeah. your brother your yeah, son and all that stuff out. yeah, the yeah. Levites. yeah. I, I don't think those guys went to heaven well Moses and Aaron were not allowed to enter the promised land because of their sin their disobedience yeah but that was different right. I mean but, they were right. literally and I think that what I think to make sure is that there's a difference between disobedience and lack of faith. Mm -hmm. So when you were comparing it to the Christians here, don't be like them, God's not going to give up on you. Well, it, it's not maybe he's well, going to give up on you, but you might not have faith, and then therefore okay. your judgment is pronounced, and yes, you can be sorry all you want, but it's not going to change the consequence. Yes. The, the difference in the... Who are the people place who, who are those people described in these verses, saved or unsaved? Mm -hmm. That determines how you see the, the punishment. If I say that these were Christians who rejected God, they were saved, and they, they're falling away means they're unsaved, well then it's impossible for them to be saved again. They're damned. Mm -hmm. okay? uh, the idea that they have committed the un, the unpardonable sin. We talked about this weeks mm -hmm. ago. I just didn't think about talking about it again. Um, the other view is that these people were never Christian, but because they associated themselves with the church so much, but never truly believed, then God hardened them to the point where they can never be saved. That's a different view. And then got this view is that these are people who were saved, and because they refused to grow, their punishment is perpetual immaturity, no rewards later. And, the, and regardless of which viewpoint you think is right, the point of it is, is you've been given a great blessing. You're in church, you're born in America, you're in a church that preaches the word of God, you have all these advantages. Don't neglect that. Don't turn away from this. Stay true. Persevere. Don't just you know, be here next week, be here two weeks from now, be here three weeks from now, be here 15 years from now, Lord willing, you're still here in church. You're still believing. And you keep seeing these warnings come up over and over in Hebrews of don't fall away. Don't neglect your salvation. Don't be like a boat that drifts off the sea without any anchor or rudder and it's just out there being tossed around. Don't be like that. Stay true. And that's why he ends with this idea is I want each of you to show the same eagerness, excuse me, the same earnestness, the same truthfulness of what you have now to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So he's telling these, his audience, this faith that you have now, this love that I see you having for your fellow Christians, your acts of service, 
I want to see you doing that until the day you die or Jesus comes back. Because if you're doing that, if you're still showing this love, you're still showing this fruit that you have, and it's growing and you're maturing, then you can have full assurance of hope. And again, that's all self-evaluation. It says, I want you to do this also said, so that you do not become sluggish. Now, that is not a word we use often. So what does the word sluggish mean? Lazy. Lazy. Dull. The best translation I found of that is spiritually indifferent. Yeah, spiritual apathy. Yeah, where you just don't really care about anything pertaining to God. And it's terrifying to meet people who grew up in church, but yet they show no desire to be there anymore. They show no desire to read the Bible. When you and other people around you are having spiritual conversations, they look bored or angry, or do they just want to move on to something else? That's very, very concerning. And I've seen this, and it's, it's a... It, it doesn't sit right with you. So instead of being the spiritually indifferent person, he ends with this. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So what we're going to start looking at next week are who are these people who were faithful until the end and they inherited the promise. And we will be talking about Abraham next week. All right, does anybody have any questions? <laughs> I will stop the recording and I will see you next week.